Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Bill Flutterbeck, founder and CEO of Climco, which is a global leader focused on developing, sourcing, and trading high-quality carbon credits and other environmental commodities. In this episode, we get behind the scenes with a no BS look at how to truly capitalize on the carbon industry. You'll get insights from a founder and a CEO who has methodically built his company up over the last 13 years. In recent years, we've seen tons of capital and new management teams rush into the industry, while Bill's been doubling down on his team's dozens and dozens of years of collective industry experience. If you ask me, Bill's a pioneer and a hell of a leader. From his first $5,000 consulting contract to recently closing a $50 million minority investment in his company, he's identified, built, and capitalized on opportunities in the carbon space before many gave the industry any attention. Along with discussing the carbon and emissions management industries, we discuss his changing role as a CEO. Now be sure to listen right to the end as we restarted recording to capture some of the final thoughts and his highlights of his favorite books. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Bill, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Glad to be here. So I'm thrilled we're having this interview because you and I have a very interesting friendship that goes back over a decade. And along that time, you've been building Climco. And I just, man, I'm so thrilled for you when I think about your story and how you've built this up and how you were so early to the game and had this vision for what it is. So You've done an amazing job here, but I really want to start off with a background, an introduction to yourself, and we'll use that to frame the rest of our conversation around the climate, around the economy, around all of this stuff. So I'll hand it over to you. That sounds good. Yeah, we connected in Miami, which is a little bit of a side stint for me. You know, real quick background about myself, really always been in air quality, Corey, you know, ever since college, you know, I was a I went to school for meteorology as an undergraduate. You know, climate science, climatology was always a focus of mine. And then later in life, I always joke I couldn't forecast the weather all that well. So I got an MBA, focus on finance and think about how to create a business around the climate. And, you know, so a lot of years in consulting, 16 years before I started to jump overseas, you know, this was back when the Bush administration didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol. We kind of, you know, sat alongside Russia, interesting partners that didn't ratify the Kyoto. In 2007, I left my comfy U.S. job to say, I really want to work in a market that is starting to put a price on carbon dioxide. And that's when I left to go work for a company headquartered in Ireland. And they were traded on the London Stock Exchange. They were one of the first movers in reducing carbon under the Kyoto Protocol. And you know, with that work, I was doing work in the Eastern European bloc countries and then ultimately got relocated down to Mexico for a central American operations. And then after 18 months, like a lot of these early companies, you know, for various reasons, they grew quickly and then got into some trouble. You know, they weren't able to produce the credits that they thought under the United Nations programs, made some financial errors and investment decisions. And ultimately, the company that I was working with went Chapter 11, we call in the US, which is like a Chapter 11 equivalent on the London Stock Exchange. They essentially went out of business bankrupt. Mm. And so that's when I used the opportunity to start 
Climco and out of Mexico, I figured no better place to come back to the U.S. and to Miami since I knew some Spanish and I was perfect at Spanglish. <laughs> I figured I would move into Miami for a bit. And that's when you and I yeah. met, actually. So we met just, I forget the year, but in January 2009 is when I started Climco. No, I'm sorry. This is a personal interjection here. Still on record, though, but if I recall, we were at like at a restaurant or something. You know, I was just thinking about that, Corey. I think we were, and I don't know how we even started speaking, Yeah, but it was, you know, and I remember telling Linda, my wife, hey, I met this guy, Corey Cleveland, really good guy. We're going to go skydiving together. Yeah. Like you said to me, we were just randomly talking and you said, well, you're going to do a tandem jump. Yeah. And I still have the photos of us uh, <laughs> uh, in, my, in my story. Yeah. And I remember Linda going, you just met somebody at a restaurant? And I said, yeah, I mean, it seems like a really fascinating guy. And I'm really intrigued and in jumping out of a plane with him. So oh, funny, man. Yeah. So it's a strange connection, right? Yeah. So you get into Climco and I want to talk more about what's happening in the industry now, because there's been so much capital coming into the space. There's been a lot of hype, but back then you start out and you're basically selling like fee-for-service contract and, and advisory? Like how did the business develop to what you have now? And then with that, can you, can you quantify what you're doing now and the services you have in the industry now? Sure. You know, when I started, Corey, what I was really intrigued in when I was working internationally for a company that had investments in methane projects, wine, manure, you know, collecting methane off of manure plants and, you know, working in biodigesters in palm oil and in Southeast Asia, they had so many projects, so much country risk. And at the end of the day, very little credits came out of those projects. And so when I came back into the U.S., you know, I saw a technology internationally that wasn't being deployed in North America, which is abatement of a certain greenhouse gas and petrochemical or fertilizer plants. So really what I wanted to be a project developer, but in order to gain the trust of the industry, I didn't just jump into saying, let me develop a project. I have no experience in the U.S., but trust me, really the first assignments were, you know, let me help you create a baseline of what your greenhouse gas emissions are. Let me build some trust with you. I believe there's an opportunity to reduce greenhouse gases at your facility, but until we have a credible baseline, we can do nothing. Hmm. You know, so let me help you get the right equipment in there to start to measure something that you're not required to measure. Hmm. You know, so the EPA wasn't requiring these companies to measure nitrous oxide in this specific case, which is a greenhouse gas. But I said, think bigger picture. I think we have an opportunity here to reduce this emission and actually use the markets to help fund the technologies that I want you to invest in because they were not going to invest in these technologies without some kind of a revenue return. Yes. It's not, it wasn't required. It was purely voluntary. So a lot of the early assignments. Corey, I remember my first one, it was like 5,000 US dollars. It was my first purchase. Amazing. And it, it was literally to do advisory around the monitoring equipment to create a baseline of, on the greenhouse gases that I wanted to abate. Amazing. So, and it was also started in cement. It was working with, when I was looking back at the first couple clients at Climco, it was also with the cement industry, you know, helping them. And now they're under the gun, you know, all these years later, you know, looking at ways to decarbonize, but it was also working with them and consulting with them on alternate fuels that they could use in, in lieu of, you know, petroleum, coke or coal to help reduce their combustion emissions. But a lot of it was with those early advisory contracts that were really important to us. And from that, I mean, it's a great success story. Where are you at now? I mean, it's an international company. You've raised capital you didn't need, you know, kind of thing. Give us some quantity here. Yeah. You know, I always want to come back to the team that we built over time. I always say the culture in our team and getting the right people. There's a lot of smart people out there, but not everybody shares the same values. You know, so the cultural alignment and the team alignment, we spent a lot of time developing it. And I think one of the things that was important for us as we, if you think of our core as a developer, you know, we want to reduce greenhouse gases with technology. You know, we want to be industry friendly. The biggest emitters we work with from oil and gas to energy to coke, you know, companies creating uh, coke for steel operations or, you know, some of the really hard to decarbonize, we call it cement mm. facilities. We work with a lot of clients and it's important that, you know, they realize that we were part of the solution with them on how they could decarbonize. So we really diversified 
our development arm. So we started in petrochemicals. So that industry got to know us. But then we realized that we should also look at other industrial gases, such as you know refrigerants and hydrofluorocarbons. And looking at some of the protocols that were available in the U.S. to collect some of these refrigerants that were banned under the Montreal Protocol with respect to producing new refrigerants. However, there was a used refrigerant market that the carbon markets actually created an incentive that said the carbon value of destroying this gas was greater than the resale value of the gas. And that gas on a resale basis was just going back into older equipment that could house that gas. Hmm. And ultimately that was being leaked to the atmosphere. So always trying to find ways to develop that core business. And then it, it expanded significantly into you know, methane to energy plants. Like we built one in California. We went, you know, the pendulum shifted all the way over into, I call it a harmonized portfolio, but also investing in nature-based solutions. And, you know, we started with our big investment in Alaska to save incredible forests with the Afognak Native Corporation. So we really wanted to diversify our portfolio so we could look at avoidance with technology but also with the realization that we can't stop every molecule from going into the atmosphere. So how do we work with protocols to help draw down okay. you know, carbon dioxide once in the atmosphere? And so that's the heartbeat. And then we listen to the customers, right? I always say, what's my job as CEO is to listen. You know, the clients were asking us, okay, Bill, well, can you also help us in policy? Can you help us with our sustainability? We want to set a goal, but we're not sure how to get there. We're not sure what goal to set. We're not sure you know, what 2030 target we should set, what's reasonable for our industry, help us with our roadmap, help us communicate to our shareholders, help us understand the impact of climate against our business, like looking at some of the, in the US SEC guidelines. Mm. And, you know, so our customers were asking us to do that. So we built on our sustainability practice as our advising arm of Climco. We call that sustainability policy advisory. And that's led by a lady, Emily Damon, on our team that's built that practice out. We have a lot of those professionals out of our Calgary office as well as in Toronto. So that's a great practice. And then if you think about the commodities that we're creating in the development, sometimes our sustainability clients, in their path to decarbonize, we do everything we can to decarbonize within their operations. We don't lead with carbon offsets ever. Hmm. You know, we lead with what can you do within your own operations first and foremost. However, if you want to get to a carbon neutral goal quicker than perhaps the technology allows or perhaps your own financial ability allows, you perhaps, you know, marrying in a transitional product of a carbon offset to help fast track your path to carbon neutrality may be important for you. And I think that's where, you know, with our transactional practice, not only do we transact the carbon that we create from our own projects, to our clients or clients that want to use an offset as part of their sustainability pathway. Our transactional practice grew quite large. And essentially, not only do we transact our own products, but we buy and sell across the globe. So we always have a blended portfolio of carbon in our inventory to meet customers' needs. And that's really more of an inventory to meet our core customers, but we also transact with other market participants as well. Wow. Take me through how you're able to frame up opportunities for capturing the value of credits when it comes to, you talk about changes in protocols or government sanctions coming in, rules change. I think, you know, Alberta, if we were to speak about the tier system there and regulations there have created opportunities, how do you eye those up and frame them up and say, this is what we're going after and here's how we'll create value when it comes to the offset markets? You know, I look at what markets have the potential for reduction, but there's a roadblock. You know, like the biggest area that we're working in right now is secondary cementitious materials, something pretty technical, SCMs, which is, you know, alternatives to cement clinker. So, you know, the cement industry has identified, you know, really three pathways to decarbonize. And one of those is looking at kind of breaking that traditional limestone in a rotary kiln to cement, right? So when you're starting to look at that, you know, as we work with the industry, we identified that there were areas to bring in secondary cementitious materials, such as pozzolanic materials or certain fly ashes or certain steel slags. Some of this was already being done in the market, but we realized that there is an opportunity to really accelerate the use of these SCMs. And essentially what an SCM would do is it would avoid the emissions. So we could actually create cement 
by avoiding just additional limestone into a kiln, which is going to create calcination or CO2 emissions as well as combustion emissions. This other products like pozzolanic material can be used as a substitute. You know, essentially the Roman Colosseum was built out of pozzolanic material and it still stands today. Yeah. So it's really working with that material to get innovative around what do we need to do to add to that material or blend it in such a way that it sets at the right time. It's workable like cement and it can be a replacement to cement. So when we see something like that, we say money needs to come into that space, you know, and how can we do that? How can we help the industry, you know, accelerate decarbonization in cement? Well, one way to do that would be to create a protocol, you know, to write a methodology that says when we replace, you know, classic cement limestone to clinker with other SCMs, how does that benefit the environment? You know, for every ton of SCM that we bring in to replace clinker, conventional clinker, what's the reduction of CO2 emissions for my cement product? And how can I monetize that into a carbon credit so I can invest into the pozzolanic mines, et cetera? So it's always trying to find if there's a gap, if we see an opportunity, but there's no methodology. Everything, Corey, starts with the methodology. So we have to be very prescriptive of what are we doing? Like, what's the baseline? What are we changing? What's the reduction of CO2 emissions and how are we verifying it? How is it permanent? How is it additional? Yes. All of these things that really create a high quality credit. So, my God, the sophistication of that, and, and as you speak to it, I mean, these are topics people don't, I think at a high level, we all understand. But, you know, at the level in which you have to speak to it, even scientifically, is very detailed. Once you write a protocol or a methodology, how does that then become something that can be a revenue generator when it comes to the commodity of the credit? You know, I find the process of writing methodologies cumbersome but important. I think the process is challenging. And let me explain that. So if we see an opportunity, you know, we'll first go to a registry. So there are four in the voluntary carbon market, there are four primary registries that are really considered the gold standard, if you will. I mean, the gold standard is one of the registries, but there are four registries, American Carbon Registry, the Bureau Registry, Climate Action Reserve, and the gold standard. So those are the four registries that buyers in the voluntary carbon market can be assured that there's a quality process with that registry. They're independent, they're not for profit. But when Clanco writes a methodology or sees an opportunity, we identify a registry and we go to the registry and we said, hey, we have an, an idea. Will you support this? And so that's the first step. Is the opportunity large enough that a registry wants to dedicate their time to work with us to create a methodology? So if it's just a one-off project, that's really challenging, Corey, because there's a lot of time commitment to write a methodology and get it approved with the registry, you know, so it has to be scalable. It's, it's got to be an opportunity yeah. that can create real global change, right? And once you identify that, the process of writing it, you know, is very scientific and engineering. So we have, you know, scientists through ecologists, soil scientists, all the way to chemical engineers and civil engineers on our team. So it's a complex array of talent to write a methodology, depending on what methodology we're writing. Once we draft it, and we submit it to the registry, it becomes their document. So we're handing it over, Corey. We no longer have the pen, right? We pass the pen to them, and then they're reviewing it. They're putting together public workshops. They're inviting stakeholders across the globe, in Europe, across the globe. This isn't, even if it's a North American application, we're working with the Stockholm Institute in certain circumstances. We're putting together all the stakeholders to challenge that work document to make sure that it's really creating real change and it's scientific, we can quantify it, it's real. So once that process is done, when I say it's challenging, you know, we've spent 18 months in this process of writing a methodology. I was going to say the timeline has got to be huge for this. It's huge. Yeah, it's a time commitment. But when I reflect on it, what's important is the process. You know, it's important that we're penning it and we're writing it, but then we have to turn it over because, you know, once that, goes to the registry and it gets approved, it's in the public domain. That's an open architecture program, right? So once a methodology is listed, Climco is not the only one that can use that, the market can. So it's important for us to create these methodologies that create market, that the market can use and it creates real scale. Um, but that's the process of creating it. And then once it's created, then we have the mechanism, you know, to take it to our clients and say, now we have a pathway, we have a methodology that will allow us to create carbon credits to help you 
bring financing. And what's really important with respect to the carbon credits is it's understanding the client's need. You know, so when they're reducing the carbon, if they're going to create a carbon credit, they can do a lot of things with that carbon credit. Once they create it, every metric ton has a serialized. So it's minted, if you will, within the registry. So we can trace it. That's a unique barcode, right? For that ton, yeah. from that site, from that methodology for that year. So it's very sophisticated. They can keep that. They can retire that against their own needs if they have a goal to hit a certain target. Or they could, if they want to bring in financing to reinvest capital into their company, they can sell that. And then that claim goes to some other company. Yes, yeah, like a, so a streaming not, company of sorts who can... That's yes. right. Yeah. So there's no double counting. So if they can't use that to reduce their own greenhouse gases, if they sell that right to another company, but by selling that right, they can bring that revenue in to reinvest into additional technologies. That's the beauty of the voluntary carbon market is that what we're doing is we're putting a price on that externality of greenhouse gas. You know, the buyer's willingness to pay in the voluntary carbon market now puts a price on it. And without that market, there's no price on that externality and change doesn't happen. You know, so I think that's the exciting part about this. It's, well, it's fascinating and it is exciting. In the carbon industry and it, within the voluntary space, is there a risk of too many credits, even of high quality and reputable origin? Sorry, my little dude has just come in. So pardon me if you can hear him in the background. Even if they're of reputable origin and registered and so on, is there a risk of far too many credits coming into the market and causing an oversupply. And what happens then? You know, I think, I mean, they're, from a pricing standpoint, yeah, there's a risk, right? So if the supply outweighs demand, you know, you know, price will come down. So I think it's really important as a developer to understand, you know, clearly what your marginal cost is, what type of a sales price do you need in order to justify your investment? So I think right now the supply is outweighing the demand. And when I say demand, I look at the demand being the actual retirement of credits. So there's a lot of credits that are sold that aren't retired that are still available in the market today. So, you know, I think as a firm focused on making an impact to the climate, that's really important to us because we want to make sure that the demand and the buyers are willing to pay a price that allows uh, our clients to make investments in technologies. And you know, that's important. And one way to do that is to also hedge uh, market risk by oftentimes when we're making investments with the clients, we're going out for, you know, three years or you know a certain length of time with buyers that really believe in what we're doing and they want to lock into some pricing, right? So it kind of takes away the market pricing risk. And then the only risk that we have as an investor is performance risk and we know how to perform. You know, so we have to be really careful on how we structure our offtake agreements, Corey, with the understanding that, you know, there are times like in 2022 in the first quarter, I call it a bull run in carbon. There's a lot of different reasons for that. But the demand was so strong that the prices of carbon, the demand went up 4x and the price of carbon went up close to 4x as well. So it was a real exciting time where a lot of companies were like, well, I'm only going to sell carbon merchant. You know, I don't want to sell forward. I think you know, I'm pretty bullish. I believe that the curve is up and to the right. Right. But I think at Climco, we realized that that's not always the case. You know, the market pricing is like a sine wave. You know, there are ups and downs. You yep. know, certainly it follows the stock markets in some ways, the Ukraine invasion and the, and the gas price issues impacted our market. The fear of recession impacts our market. So although the demand may still be there, that demand may be on the sideline. They're not ready to quite engage yet because of all these other economic forces on top of them. So we're used to sine wave curves with respect to market pricing. We've withstood all of that over time by always doing the right thing, putting in the right technologies, looking at the right projects, understanding our marginal costs, understanding when to hedge and when to go merchant. We want to make sure that we're bringing the revenue back to our host clients so they continue to reinvest that capital to do the next right thing. And I think, you know, customers' willingness to pay, Corey, is really dependent, right? It's a voluntary carbon market. So, you know, what does a customer if they want an offset that's part of their supply chain and we have a technology that's able to do that, you know, that may resonate well with them and they may understand that there's a certain level of investment, but that makes sense to them because that product is within their supply chain and it feels right. It's a voluntary purchase at the end of the day. And then we have clients that may want to do nature-based projects and, and maybe it's a client that has, you know, a real passion for mangroves. 
for instance, mangrove reestablishment and coastal restoration, coastal resiliency in mangroves. And, and it has so many other benefits to it that, you know, their willingness to pay will need to be higher because in order to plant mangroves and that's expensive endeavor, the marginal cost is, is significantly higher than some other project type. So, you know, if that customer isn't willing to pay that price, then I would go to that customer. Well, you may want to think about a different offset type then. Yes. You know, there's other quality offsets, but not at the same price point. Interesting. It's a really fascinating industry, man. And I think what's just so neat is because it's so topical, especially in Canada right now, but North America and in the markets about offsets, but you've been in it so long. So with respect to the voluntary and the regulated markets, how do you approach either and how's Climco been built by a percentage? Where do you focus your energy? You know, we love the regulatory markets, but you know, there's something that we call swipe a pen risk. We've certainly seen it in Canada you know, with different leadership may come in and may change a program. We saw it in Ontario, certainly, because Ontario was once linked with California until an election change. And then overnight, they pulled out of California linkage. Okay. You know, so there's a lot of swipe of pen risk with regulatory programs, but it's core to us. You know, Assembly Bill 32 in California in 2006, that was launched under the Schwarzenegger administration. We've been involved in that program ever since 2006. Now we started the company in 09, but we've been following it. I've been following it since its inception. So we have a lot of clients in California under that cap and trade program where we're helping them with their strategies, their compliance strategies, reducing their emissions within their facilities. If they need to secure emission allowances in the auctions, we help them do that. We're on the auction block. We're looking at purchasing offsets for them to blend in to reduce their compliance costs. They can use a certain percentage offsets which transact at a lower price than an allowance. So you want to make sure you're maximizing all the tools available to comply at the lowest price, right? And then in Calgary, you know, Climco Canada, we're headquartered in Calgary and incorporated in British Columbia. But, you know, that whole market, the reason why we're there is because Alberta was a leader in cap and trade. I mean, it's evolved. It's taken different shape, but there's a real strong price signal for the price of carbon in our first project in Canada was to work with one of the largest point sources of, of offsets feeding into that Alberta system and represent them and, and harvest those credits to sell into the compliance market. You know, so that's actually was the first project that we had, again, in our core business of petrochemical, but working in Alberta to bring almost 700,000 tons of offsets to the market a year wow. through one of the technologies that we were overseeing there. And then we got very involved again into the policy of helping our clients understand like when the program is being revised, you know, we want to have a seat at the negotiation table to make sure that the interests of our industrial clients are heard, right? Yes. So that's when we bring that policy aspect to the, and then we also bring our transactional. So it's that, you know, when I think of one client go in Canada, Alberta is a great example. We came in working as a developer, helping develop a project and oversee a project that fed credits into the Alberta cap and trade system. We help them transact. So that's our transactional arm. And then ultimately, we're doing policy and advisory work in Alberta. So all three of our business units are at play in Alberta. So I mean, you, got, you ask percentages. I would say that in, when I think of cap and trade or the voluntary carbon market, I almost want to say it's probably 85% voluntary carbon market, 15% compliance. Okay, wow. You know, so the voluntary carbon market for us is really, you know, it really grew. And, and at one time, Corey, it was, I remember a lot of the competition was saying, you're in that voluntary carbon market, you know, we're in the compliance markets, uh, you know, what are you doing? And then all of a sudden the voluntary carbon markets really picked up. And I just believe that the cap and trade, the regulatory markets were not capturing and bringing a price to carbon in markets where they were most needed. And so I really believe that we needed to create a VCM or voluntary carbon market to really attack the opportunity out there and bring capital into industrial applications and nature-based applications that weren't incentivized by cap-and-trade program. Fascinating. It's uh, perhaps not the best analogy, but I see, when I think about the voluntary market, I, I see creativity. You know, there's an opportunity to be an artist. Whereas I see within the regulated, it's, you know, a very regimented approach and far more calculated. But I think the neat thing is, is the uh, opportunity to take that art you know, art within the realm of very sophisticated thinking and bring that over to the regulated space after figuring it out and building into to systems that can be transferred over. Really interesting. Yeah. And uh, Corey, I can, I can touch to that because I think you're right. I almost smiled when you described what we do as a little bit more 
there's more opportunity. We can be more creative to do the right thing instead of having to work with legislator legislative groups to enact a change to allow a protocol to come in. I mean, that's like pushing a rope uphill, right? Right. So there's so much opportunity out there that we can focus on outside of those markets. And But a lot of the compliance markets ultimately do lean on, ultimately, the voluntary carbon market. So if you look at the California market, you know they looked at the voluntary registries and said, which protocols do we like? Which ones do we want to house within the compliance markets? And they essentially borrowed that content modified it slightly and called it a compliance protocol. So I think yeah. that there are a lot of markets that are looking at what we're doing in the voluntary carbon market. And they're saying, does this feel right for our program? Is this something we want to endorse? One of the challenges are, is that if we're doing a, a project type in petrochemical, but petrochemical is regulated under a compliance program, but we're doing involuntary actions in all the other states or provinces that aren't regulated, it, sometimes it's a challenge to bring in you know, that methodology into the regulated market because that's already a regulated sector, you know, so they wouldn't be eligible to create offsets, but they would be able to reduce their emissions and and reduce their reliance on buying allowances, right? So that's a big difference between compliance markets and voluntary. So sometimes what we're doing in compliance markets, we're not creating an offset at a regulated entity if we're reducing emissions within their fence line, but we're reducing their obligation to purchase allowances in that regulated market. So that's as beneficial to them, but it's not a carbon credit, if you will. It's different. Gotcha. Okay. Can you talk to me about the Alberta market? And it's out of out of curiosity being a Canadian up here and it's my old stomping grounds. Just tell me a bit more about it. I've come to learn that it is a really reputable market and it has been a leader for a number of years, despite I think people's assumptions that as a more right-wing province and conservative province with oil and gas industry, it was surprising to hear that it is a leading kind of authority within the regulated space. But what more can you tell us about it? Yeah, I would say, you know, I've got a team that focuses on the Alberta program. So I haven't been intimately involved in all the tier changes to the program, but I can say that it has been instrumental. You know, they work with the industries. They you know, allowed industries to reduce emissions within their own fence line and create uh, emission performance credits or EPCs and transact those to other regulated entities. They allowed offset protocols. You know, one of the big ones was agricultural based in Alberta, which was a soil no tillage protocol that reached its useful life because, you know, the industry in Alberta has adopted it. So I believe it's no longer an eligible protocol moving forward. But they really were creative in supporting offset protocols outside of the industrial sector, but also allowing the industrial sector to reduce their emissions below their targets and actually sell that as well into the market. A great opportunity, a great mechanism that was added by the Alberta program. So I find that in general, Alberta was very open to listening to stakeholders. There are a lot of stakeholder engagements. I used to participate in those years ago, Corey. I don't anymore, but we've got members of our team that do to support our industry. But we often look at the Alberta system as one of the flagships. I think at times it was critiqued because it allowed for intensity reductions as opposed to firm baseline reductions. So sometimes, you know, there are pros and cons of looking at intensity reductions. But I think it's a great first step. You know, you got to support growth within industry. But how are you reducing the emissions per widget made? that's an intensity reduction, right? So I think those are really important mechanisms within the market, really important for change. But uh, yeah, I can just say that in general, when programs are being framed, I think a lot of industries are looking at Assembly Bill 32 in California, but they're also looking at Alberta successes as well. And then of course, linked with California, you know, we have Quebec as well. So Quebec is linked in and that's still an active link. Ontario used to be linked and they're no longer linked. So there's some federal backstop provisions or provincial specific cap and trade programs that are within Canada. Awesome, man. It just, I look at time and we're already, you know, 40 minutes in and I mean, just the list of follow on questions I have keeps building up, but I want to talk about a few other things that you've got going. One of them, I have got, you know, this personal battle and just disdain for plastics. And so changing gears here, one of the projects that you've started through Climco is, I believe it's the first plastic credit with Tontoton, if I've pronounced that right. Tell us about this and what does that look like? 
Yeah. So, you know, we often talk, Corey, about how can we bring environmental markets to combat environmental challenges, right? How can we bring the markets? You know, we talked a lot about putting a price on carbon to create change. That's what the voluntary carbon market did. Now, when we start to think about the plastics market, you know, at Climco, we always like to follow our passions. And we love the atmosphere of the earth. We love the oceans. We've got a lot of boaters out in the waters. We see the microplastics, the chunky plastics. They're not all micro. There's a lot of floaters in there. You know, there's a huge issue. And if you look at where globally some of the plastics aggregate based on ocean currents, it's incredible. You know, so Southeast Asia is one area off the coast of Africa. In Cote d'Ivoire, we've got a project we're working with UNICEF and it's called the Way Project to collect ocean bound plastic or ocean plastics. So, you know, we actually have teams of folks in Africa, which is an amazing social story, but we've empowered women in Africa through the Way Project to collect plastics and make, I believe by the UNICEF's calculations, about 5x of what they would make otherwise. So they're making more money by collecting plastics. They're using those plastics to actually extrude those into what look like Lego blocks to build UNICEF single story schools. What a great story. Ocean plastics to schools for kids, right? This gets me tingly because it's like now all of a sudden it's the social aspect. We're creating change. I'm seeing like a halo over your head. I'm like, that's amazing, man. Like that's I mean this this is the stuff that I get like I could get kind of you know talking about the passion and the emotions of changing lives and the social aspects of projects like this. But we brought camera crews into like Africa and the waves of plastic that washes on shore every day is incredible, Corey. You know, I've got drone footage of what looks like a wall of plastic. We cleared the beach one night. The next day, it looks like we never worked on it. Yeah. Uh, a wall of plastic came in again with the tides. So this is really happening. This isn't microplastics. Like I said, this is like you can't swim in this stuff. It's like a barrier wall. So there's a huge need for that. But, you know, unless we're creating a market for it. I mean, this is plastic, Corey, that isn't making it. It's not being recycled. This is low-grade plastics, right? There's not a house for this. It's not like we can take the resin into Apple so they can make iPhones. You can't get it. It troubles me the the amount of people who think recycling is just a quick, just ah, turn it into something new when the reality is it's a consistent downcycling as the product, the plastic becomes more and more contaminated let alone having this stuff just float in the ocean and then what do you do with it? So this is really, really amazing. Yeah. And you mentioned ton to ton. So that was our first great, great counterpart that we worked with. And and they were collecting plastic. They were doing the right thing, but there was no market for it and they couldn't support it financially. So, you know, we come in and we say, well, for every metric ton of plastic collected, we're going to create a market for this. We've got buyers that use virgin plastics that want to make an investment into the environment. And they're saying, you know, for every ton of virgin plastic that they produce, they're looking at being socially responsible and they want to invest in plastic credits. So they want it for every ton that they use virgin, they want to buy or invest in a ton of plastic that's collected that's from the ocean. Even if they're not getting the resin, they're buying that credit and that credit is being used to finance operations in Vietnam, allowing them to collect more plastic. That is so low grade plastic, Corey, that there's nothing to do with it other than we found a great home for it in cement kilns to replace coal and petroleum coke and actually reduce the CO2 emissions from cement kilns by feeding in the collected plastics through our projects. So that's Mm. what we call that co-processing. That's co-processing. We also downcycle. We make furniture in Malaysia with it, with our partner. If we can upcycle it and bring it back into a circular economy, fantastic. That's really not as much of a plastic credit story because the buyer of those resins or they want that recycled logo or recycled content to go with their product. But when we're downcycling it or we're co-processing it, there is no other value for this. So the plastic credit price actually is creating real change. It's a brand new market, Corey. You know, I always say we're long plastic, meaning that we're investing in this market because we believe in it. Yeah. You know, the demand isn't meeting our supply yet. So we're actually bringing more supply, but our team is really socializing this. And we believe it's a critical, critical issue that Climco can help address in a small way. Amazing. Okay. How about switching gears again? Can you talk us through the recent minority investment that you took on? And I think you took a couple, but earlier in our conversation, I said you brought on money you didn't need, which is a nice place to be, but there's obviously more to that. Tell us about that. 
But I think, yeah, I'm going to maybe I'll shift a little bit because the capital was perfectly timed for us. But why do you bring in outside capital, right? So I think at the end of the day, about two years ago, I was the primary shareholder. You know, we'd, you know, some shares were to board members, et cetera. But certainly, you know, majority of shares were mine. I didn't sell equity in the company over all those years. Why I decided to was the first investor was a minority investor in the Heritage Group, just a great, great company with around 5,000 employees, really diversified into you know a fourth generation family business founded on asphalt. They have record incinerators, has waste incinerators, has waste landfills. They have a really large initiative working with their clients on zero waste to landfill. So we call it the white glove treatment, but they'll work with clients to make sure that you know, it's not going to landfill. It's all diverted into beneficial pathways. So just a really incredible company. And their clients were saying to them, please bring in more to us. You know, their clients were saying, we want help with our decarbonization. You're helping us with our waste minimization and zero waste to landfill goals. Can you also bring more services? So they approached us and we started a relationship with them, started to work with them over time and realized that there was incredible synergy. They've got a client mix across the globe, really focused in North America, but across the globe that needed our help. Our clients were looking at, you know, we're really good in the carbon aspect, but we didn't have all of the anything close to what Heritage had with respect to waste minimization in all of the services that Heritage provides. So it was really symbiotic, meaning that we could bring their services to our clients. They could bring us to theirs. And it really made sense that they come in as a minority investor. And that was a smaller percentage. And then within about a year after that, you know, that was going well, but we also wanted to take Climco's brand global. And like I said, Heritage is global, but primarily North America. So we really wanted to look at more classic, well-aligned private equity. So Heritage Group, I wouldn't call that private equity, although it is. That equity isn't expecting any kind of immediate return. It's not looking for an out in a certain amount of years. You know, that's really patient capital, kind of aligning interests of two companies. And so that was the Heritage Group. When we brought in Warburg Pincus as really you know one of the leaders across the globe in private equity, we had worked with Warburg for years. You know, I, I would say I, I always like to joke, Corey. You know, when we met in Miami, I was married to Linda. I'm still married to my incredible wife Linda, but I dated her for five years before I married her 30 years ago. So I don't jump into relationships quick, but when I'm in them, they last a long time. Yeah. And with Warburg, it was the same thing. It was getting to know them. It was do we have alignment? So they would often look at you know, decarbonization investments. And through our relationship, they would ask Climco about what our thoughts were. We would help them kind of screen investments. And then one day came along that they said, hey, hey, Bill, you know, we looked at all the carbon companies out there. We don't see anything like yours out there. You're the one we want. Is there any way we could participate as an equity investor in Climco? And then that took time. That was probably a six, you know, we like to say that was a slow dance too. You know, that took six to nine months or so to talk about that and make sure it was the right size amount of equity that we had aligned growth goals. But what I really love about the Warburg team, it, it works perfectly with Heritage, is that we've got an incredible board. In fact, this week up in my Lake Placid home, we had a board retreat with everybody here, you know, talking about strategy, skiing a little bit, having some fun together, but really aligning our interests. And you know, as we're going global with the Climco brand, I and mean, now we're in the APAC region, we're, we're headquartering APAC in Singapore, we're in India, going into India now, we're in China. You know, all of these areas, Warburg is incredibly strong. They help us think differently. They have a value creation group within Warburg that is helping us think about our brand and the way we communicate it, working with us on our ERP program and, and helping us get with the infrastructure to take us to that next level globally. And that's the perfect partnership for us is that alignment with Warburg as well as Heritage. And when Warburg came in, Heritage uh, hit their preemptive clause and they reinvested as well, which was great for us because it really showed us that Heritage was really believing and they saw the value in our relationship. So they're both minority investors, very similar percentages overall, but two really important partners. So I always say at this point, we've got the balance sheet that we need Clients or, you know, people come to us and they ask to invest in Climco. Since we don't need the capital right now, we have access to all the capital that we need, but we do look at requests like that to see, you know, is there an opportunity to align interests? You know, can you bring more than capital? If we have alignment of interests, you know, can we open up opportunities across the globe with you as an investor that we don't otherwise have? 
So it's not like we just turn down all asks, but it's not the need for capital. It's the need for alignment. So again, like even when we're in Southeast Asia, we're entertaining potential investors and maybe a special purpose entity in Southeast Asia to help grow that practice. But it's got to be more than just the capital. It has to be an alignment reason for us to do that. I appreciate that. And I think it's really great advice in the sense like, you know, it's it's easier to get divorced than it is to get rid of an investor. And so do the slowdowns, uh, certainly if you right. can. Yeah, do the With the growth of Climco and you as a professional, how have you changed as a leader as you've grown through from your first $5,000 client to now a global organization? How has that changed you or how have you had to grow as a leader? Oh, God, so many ways. So I think every CEO needs a mentor. I always say, you know, I needed a boss. So my chairman, Steve Moore, is one of my mentors. And, you know, I met him in business when he was president of a large organization. And then when he stepped down, you know, I retained him. I was like asking Linda out on, on my first date when I asked him to be on my board. I thought, why would this incredible leader in industry ever joined Climco's board many years ago. So I was nervous. I asked him, but I saw just incredible ways I could learn from Steve. And he joined our board quickly. I stepped down as chairman. I put him as chairman. So I think as a CEO, it's important that we're always learning, always have a mentor. You know, it's a lonely position, as Steve told me, to be the CEO. And he's here for me. So every two weeks we have get togethers. It's my agenda, not his. I'm kind of talking about what's keeping me up at night what's on my mind, what I'm thinking about. And and Steve was instrumental in bringing Heritage and Warburg relationships to us as well. So, you know, I joke that he's one of my master networkers. But, you know, so as a CEO, I think it's important for me to always be learning. I think the other role is less doing and more coaching. You know, so at this point, I'm not the doer of projects. I'm working with my business unit leaders. I'm learning from them. I'm coaching them. So, you know, I have sessions every two weeks with all, with all business unit leaders. I say I'm carving out a day every two weeks just to spend time with them, ask them, you know, what's happening, what's on their list, what's keeping them up at night. It's their agenda, not mine, similar to what Steve does with me. So, and then the business unit leaders, we also have a red, green, yellow spreadsheet. So what we mean by that, you know, is that we all have critical things. We have tactical and we have strategic goals. So tactical is short-term, strategic is long-term. And we have aligned our KPIs, our key performance indicators on those goals. But we also, when we get together as a whole team, and we do this every two weeks as well, we have red, yellow, green. So is there something tactical on my side that's red? You know, I, I want to be honest and raise my hand and say, I've got a couple things that I need help on. And it's red. And, and how can you help me? How can we help each other? So I think, you know, it's oftentimes everybody says everything is green. Well, bullcrap. Nothing's always green, right? There's got to be some cautionary flags. Something yeah. isn't quite going well tactically or strategically, or the red flag is up and I need help. So I think it's setting up that environment where we have that communication channel to work with each other. I love it. I learned so much from the business unit leaders. We have an incredible mentoring program as well in the company. So I have mentees in the company. A lot of our business unit leaders are mentors, and we have different classes of mentorship. We're in class two. We just started this over a year ago. So this is class two. So we like to give back a lot to the team. And you know, last year, we had 97% retention rate. Wow. We had one departure that was mutual. But people don't leave Climco. Why? Because we have the story. You know, The culture is strong. The compensation is well aligned. And it's a fun place to work. We've got flexibility I mean, people matter, you know? So I'd say for me, it's developing a company that looks like the world, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion is everything for me. So, you know, look at the leadership ranks of Climco. There's as many, you know, we call it the trunk, you know, you can have diversity at the roots. That's great. You know, but what's the trunk of the tree look like? You know, what's the top of the tree at the leadership level? Do you have diversity at the leadership level? Do you have diversity at the board level? You know, so I looked at our entire tree, Corey, and I want to make sure that the tree at every level represents the world. And that creates creative thinking, right? Because you're surrounded by different folks of different, have different lenses. So I think the funnest part for me, why I'm enjoying it so much is that my role has changed. I'm not diving into a technical protocol. I'm not installing an abatement system anymore. I put a team together that allows me to think what's next. What's the next big thing for us? So certainly, like I have my own KPIs, I've got my own goals, and one of them, you know, I'm going to Singapore every quarter as I'm launching Climco Singapore. But I'll bring the right leadership into that, and then I'll pull out and then tackle the next thing. So 
but spending a lot of time, you know, the chemistry is that strong with the team. The chemistry needs to be that strong with the board. So, you know, I do spend a lot of time with the board. Why I had a retreat is that sometimes we have to be activity heavy and agenda light. You know, it's important to hang with people and really get to know them better. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, culture and team is where I spend a lot of my time, Corey, and it's why I'm having so much fun. Bill, this is amazing. I'm so glad that, well, we've stayed in touch. We're all over a decade and I know we're getting close to time and you got to jump, but thank you so much for making this possible. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Corey. You know, it's just so, so great to connect and congratulations on your success with the podcast and so much more. I really appreciate you thinking about me and reaching out to me. Awesome, man. Okay. We're back quick. This is just a quick addendum. Bill wanted to answer this question. So three favorite books. Tell me. Yeah. And, and it was hard for hey, Corey. I think a lot about this because I have a lot of books on tape. I'm a podcast listener and I'm always learning. So this is one of the things I talked about my mentor, Steve, more. We're always sharing book ideas, but some of the, I'm going to say my four best books, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Okay. This is one that really changed my life back in my business school days, but Good to Great's an amazing book. Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrarzi just power networking. I always think it's very simple in some ways. Like I don't eat alone. People have to eat. It's a great way to have yeah. you and I met. Yeah, no kidding. Um, in Miami, we didn't eat alone, right? Uh, Quiet Leadership by David Rock. Quiet Leadership is an amazing book because instead of somebody saying, hey, Corey, what should I do? If you told them what to do, well, you know, it's not as effective as you saying, well, have you thought about this? Mm. You know, help start them getting thinking 360 to map that solution themselves because when they map it themselves, it's so much more powerful. So when people ask me what I would do, I don't respond to that. I'll get them thinking about what they should do, thinking about the variables in front of them. So let them mind map it themselves. Mm. That's, you know, Quiet Leadership is just an amazing book. And then recently I read Start With Why by Simon Sinek and start, you know, not what you do, but why do you do it, right? You know, so those are my four top books. Amazing. I appreciate us just click and record again because I really like hearing that. And it is funny, you know, never eat alone. And that's how you and I connected way back when. And then the next book about quiet leadership, I was actually speaking with my counselor about that, about how, you know, compared to being, you know, the dictator versus the question asker and how much that changes relationships. So interesting. Bill, thanks so much, man. I'd jump out of a plane anytime with you. Absolutely, Gord. Me too, man. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.